Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. I'm presenting a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John, and this is the 116th program in this series. In the previous message, I was speaking about John chapter 18 with regards to the trial of Annas. And I explained in the previous message that the Roman soldiers probably took Jesus to Annas instead of bringing him to the Roman compound, which is what they were expected to do, probably because Judas disappeared, because he didn't expect that Jesus would allow himself to be arrested. The Roman soldiers took Jesus to Annas, who was the legitimately recognized high priest by the people, This was the person who was considered to be the head religious guy, in a sense. Caiaphas was the high priest who had the authority to execute the office of the high priest because he was given this power by the Romans. Annas was not recognized as a person by the Romans as someone who had any authority there in the land at all, really. And so it was interesting to see that the Romans took Jesus to the guy who they didn't recognize as being the one who had authority there in Israel, instead to the religious guy. And I explained that this was probably because they had the religious experience of being thrown to the ground in some way when Jesus told them that he was the divine presence. And I explained this in the previous program. Now, this was a trial that took place, and all trials needed to take place in the temple compound in what was known as the Hall of Judgment. You would never have a trial anywhere else. According to the laws of the Sanhedrin, all trials needed to be public. They needed to take place during the day and at a place where everybody knew where it would happen. And so there were a lot of laws that were being violated by the religious leadership there in Israel as part of their attempt to condemn Jesus for supposedly violating the law in some way. Now, I did speak about the subject of the trial of Jesus, the trials of Jesus, in a series that I produced on the trial of Jesus. And you can find these messages in the radio archive. At this time, I'm just going through the Gospel of John. And so I'm not going to consider the entire experience that Jesus had with regards to his trials. If you'd like to know the details with regards to what was happening, especially at the home of Caiaphas, I produced another set of programs for this purpose. In this program, I'm going to continue with the subject of the denial of Jesus by Peter. Peter denies Jesus three times. In the Gospel of John, it appears that the first time that he denied Jesus was at the home of Annas in the chronology that John presents in verse 17. Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. 
it appears that this is at the home of Annas. And I explained when I spoke about verse 17 that this is probably because Peter was very much disoriented. There were a lot of things going on that he did not expect. The way that he thought things should be was very different from the way things ended up being. And because all of this was happening so fast, and he was right in the midst of it, it would be easy for him to try to reduce the amount of conflict that he could potentially be involved in. If he confessed that he was one of Jesus' disciples, well, then the people there may decide that they're going to have a conflict with Peter. And there is so much already that is going on that Peter will have to navigate through, work through, understand that it's reasonable for Peter to be dishonest. It's not appropriate. It's definitely wrong. But it's reasonable when you consider that there is so much going on. Does he want to add to the problems that he's dealing with, to the issues that he's confronted with? Does he want to add to that and increase the difficulty that he's already faced with? This is not unusual for people to do, for people to use dishonesty to try and reduce the amount of conflict and struggles that they are dealing with in their life at that time. This is considered to be an easy solution. It's obviously not right to be dishonest, but this is what Peter decided to do. Consider the consequences that Peter might be faced with if he confessed that he was a believer in Jesus, that he was one of the disciples. When you go down to verse 24, 25, 26, you can see that there is some significant risk. Now, it says in verse 24, Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. And so it appears that according to John's testimony, Peter's first denial took place at the home of Annas, and then Jesus was moved to Caiaphas' home, and Peter was probably part of the procession of people that took Jesus to Caiaphas' home. And when he got there, he found another way to warm himself. This is the chronology that appears to be in John, but it is important to keep in mind that John never made the claim that his gospel was going to be written in complete chronological order. And so the first confession might have happened when Peter was at Caiaphas' home. This is a question that would be answered by looking at the other testimonies that we have in the other gospels. And Luke was the only one who testified that his gospel was written for the purpose of recording everything in chronological order. And so this is how we would answer that kind of a question. But again, I'm not going to address this issue in these programs. In verse 25, we can see the greater risk that Peter was faced with if he decided to testify that he was a disciple of Jesus. In verse 25, Now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. Therefore they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him, whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? All right, so you've got another servant of the high priest, not just the one that was there, Malchus, 
But another one, one of his relatives, he was there also. And he saw what happened. And he thinks that Peter is the guy. He was there. He saw it. And you know, Peter looks a lot like the guy who went after his relative and took off his ear. Now, there's no discussion here about the fact that Jesus healed Malchus. There appears to be no discussion about the miracle that took place. If I was Peter, I would consider that as an option to redirect the conversation and say, well, hey, listen, you know, we just saw a miracle if that really happened. If that really happened, and you all say it happened, you were there, you are a witness, you saw that this guy took off Malchus's ear, wielding a long ceremonial knife, attempting to execute a Jewish Rambo to now solve all of the problems of life with a knife. But have you really given much thought to the fact that Jesus healed this guy? That he healed the ear? Now, if this happened, maybe you should consider being a disciple of Jesus if this is what he was able to do. There is an opportunity to redirect conversation. There might have been some of that. We don't have that recorded here. But consider what could have happened if Peter said, yes, I'm the guy. I'm the one who went after your relative and I hit him in the head with my long ceremonial knife and I took off his ear. Yes, that's me. I sure did. Now, if he said that, well, then they could perhaps put him on trial. They could put Peter on trial and maybe they'll take his ear off. Because he took Malchus's ear off. Never mind that Jesus healed Malchus's ear. Well, if Jesus healed Malchus's ear, maybe Jesus will heal your ear too. But according to the law, it's eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, therefore an ear for an ear. But you know, it could have even been worse than that. They may have decided to execute him. That could have been a possibility. And if you want to include a discussion of whether they are going to hold the trial correctly, appropriately, in accordance with the laws of the Sanhedrin, or not, consider what's happening with Jesus right now. They are violating over 20 laws of the Sanhedrin in the process of doing to Jesus what they're doing. So what kind of confidence should Peter have that the Sanhedrin will follow the laws of the Sanhedrin for his trial or for his issues. This is a lot of uncertainty and could result in a tremendous amount of fear and concern, which would motivate him to deny reality, to deny that he was the guy, to deny that he was a follower of Jesus. I'm not saying that it's right. It's definitely wrong. But I want you to have an appreciation for what Peter was faced with. And maybe consider that if you were him, if you were there, if you were faced with the same things, maybe you would deny Jesus too. So don't be too quick to judge Peter if you might feel inspired to do so. Because it's not unrealistic to suggest that maybe you would do the same thing. Again, in verse 26, one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? And then in verse 27, Peter then denied again, and immediately a rooster crowed. Now, Peter could have heard the rooster 
And he could have recognized that sure enough, he denied Jesus three times, just like Jesus said. He heard the rooster crow in the middle of the night, just like Jesus said. So now, this could be an opportunity for Peter to make a correction. He could have just said to everyone, excuse me, but I made an error. I made a small mistake. I said something that may not quite be correct. It turns out that, yes, I am the guy. I am a disciple of Jesus, and yes, I sure did. I went after your relative, and I took off his ear with my knife. In fact, maybe I can find the knife and show it to you. Here it is, with some blood on it even. I'm the one. Yes, I am. He could have responded in that way after the exposure of his sin to himself. But we don't have an indication that that's what happened. In verse 28, John chapter 18, verse 28, Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early morning. But they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. So John skipped over the entire trial before Caiaphas, and I explained what happened in the other series I produced on the trial of Jesus. You can find this in the Living God Ministries radio archive. Instead, John skips that and he goes right to the trial before the Romans. Now, it's early in the morning and a lot has happened. At the end of verse 28, it says, but that they might eat the Passover. Now, what does this mean? Because the Passover just happened. That was what happened at twilight the previous evening, just before this morning. Jesus ate the Passover meal with his disciples. How could John say that they might eat the Passover? The Passover was already eaten. What does this mean here in verse 28? Well, what this means is, is that this is the next day after the Passover meal. This would be referring to the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is part of the laws regarding Passover, that the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread takes place 24 hours after the Passover meal. And because of the close connection between these two different meals, or these two different festivals, because of the close connection the term Passover and the term Feast of Unleavened Bread ended up being used synonymously. And so a person can say Passover, and yet they're referring to the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, or they could say Passover, and they're referring to the Passover meal that would happen 24 hours before that. I explain this in detail in the series I produced on accounting for the three days and three nights. You can find that series in the Living God Ministries radio archive also, so I won't get into it in these programs. But that's what was going on. When you see the word Passover here in verse 28, it really is a word that was used synonymously with the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and based on the chronology of events, This is something that someone who is familiar with the Mosaic Law would easily be able to recognize. Now, this first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread was 
a feast. It was a big festival. And in modern times, what people refer to as the Passover Seder is the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It is not the Passover meal that happened 24 hours prior. And so when people engage in the Passover Seders today, and they speak of this being the meal that Jesus experienced, the ceremonial part of the meal was experienced between Jesus and his disciples, technically they are a day late and a law short. The Passover Seder was not what Jesus did with his disciples. This is what the people are going to do this evening after there are three stars visible in the sky. And the people wanted to be sure that they would be able to participate in the festivities and not have to leave the camp or leave town. If they became ritually unclean, then according to the law of Moses, there were some circumstances where they could become ritually unclean, in which case they would be unclean until evening, which means that they would have to leave town until there are three stars visible in the sky, and then they can come back to town. But the amount of time that they would spend probably coming back to town would give them an opportunity to miss out on the Passover Seder with their friends and families. So they decided not to enter into the Roman compound because the Romans did not observe the law of Moses, especially those laws that could result in a person becoming ritually unclean. Therefore, the Jews did not enter the Roman compound, but instead just brought Jesus up to the Romans and delivered him through the gate. Now, Jesus was supposed to have been brought to the Roman compound a lot earlier. When the Roman soldiers returned from arresting Jesus, This was early in the previous evening, and they returned to the praetorium. They returned to the Roman compound without the prisoner. They all came back, and they had a few stories to tell, but they did not come back with the prisoner. The prisoner was taken to Annas. Annas would not release Jesus, because if he did, well, then it could be held against him. So Annas shifted responsibility and therefore also shifted potential blame over to Caiaphas by having him delivered to Caiaphas. Caiaphas then becomes the person responsible for what happens to Jesus, and he decides to shift responsibility and shift potential blame for Jesus back over to the Romans. He delivers Jesus, in effect, over to the Romans. Now, if Jesus could have been held by the Romans and put on trial by the Romans, they would have done that already, but they didn't do it. In this case, you've got the Jews who are delivering Jesus again, but if they're going to do that, well, they're going to have to bring some evidence that Jesus has violated Roman law, and they don't have any. They didn't have enough before, They don't have enough now, but they take Jesus to the Romans anyway. In verse 29, Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, 
we would not have delivered him up to you. Now, what kind of an answer is that? That's not an accusation. That's not a legitimate reason to bring Jesus over to Pilate. But obviously, that doesn't matter. That doesn't have any relevance. We have no accusation except obviously it is self-evident that he is an evil person. This is who these people are. They are the kinds of people who will bring someone who has not violated any law at all, but they will bring someone over to court, over to trial, regardless of whether or not this is legitimate. They don't care. They don't care if Jesus has done anything or if he hasn't done anything. We just don't like him. And so we will do this. They will use force in order to bring Jesus over to the Romans and just simply make all kinds of accusations, whatever they can think of. He's an evil person. What are they doing? I mean, what do they really want? They just want Jesus to die. And it doesn't matter that there is no legitimate reason for him to die. That doesn't matter. This is just who these people are. And there are people in the world today who are like that. They don't care what's right or wrong or what is legitimate or illegitimate. If they get an opportunity to exercise force upon someone else that could even get that person executed, they will do it. For them, it could just simply be a matter of fun. They might have a really boring life. They may not have any sense of real meaning and purpose in their lives. And you provide them with an opportunity for recreation, for fun, for purpose, because they have a way to use force against you. Even though it's wrong, even though it's illegitimate, it doesn't matter. They probably don't have anything else to do with their life anyway. So if it doesn't work out, they don't really lose anything. It doesn't cost them anything to exercise this force upon you, but it does cost you something because you had to suffer under their ability to interfere with your life and put you into this kind of a scenario where you end up being faced with some other authorities who may make a good decision or a bad decision. And for the people who used force in order to get you there, it just doesn't matter what the end result is. They are not going to really lose anything except time out of their lives. But from their point of view, this can easily just be a form of recreation, a form of fun. Now, these are true evildoers, the kinds of people who brought Jesus to the Romans for no legitimate cause. Except what? Because Jesus made them feel bad. Why? Because he told the truth. He told the truth. It exposed just how rotten, wicked, and evil they really are. That made them feel uncomfortable. That hurt their feelings. And so because of this, and because they are so important, because they are so exceptionally wonderful in life, how dare anyone make them feel uncomfortable, especially by exposing the truth about how dishonest 
how wicked and how evil they really are? Well, they'll just go ahead and do something like this. So what does Pilate say in verse 31? Then Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. So Pilate tells them, Look, you people deal with this. You have no right to be here. And then they said, Well, we do, because... This person is worthy of death, and we don't have the right to put him to death. So on this basis, the trial before Pilate begins. And I will continue with this in the next program. Thank you for listening. This is the 116th program in the verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John. In this program, I was in John chapter 18, verses 24 to 30. And in this program, I spent some more time talking about the denial of Peter, when Peter denied Jesus three times. I explained the struggle that Peter quite likely was faced with in the sense that the way things were were definitely different from the way that Peter thought things would be. And I explained that he was also at great risk of letting people know that he was a disciple of Jesus, not because of what they might do legitimately, but because of what they might do illegitimately. It was obvious that what was being done to Jesus was wrong. What they were doing was in violation of the laws of the Sanhedrin. And since Peter was observing the behavior of these people, it would be reasonable for him to recognize the risk of what they might do to him. This is expanded more when the people took Jesus to Pilate and they did not have a legitimate accusation against Jesus for violating Roman law. And so these are the circumstances that lead up to the trial that Jesus had before Pilate. And I will explain this more in the next program. You've been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 383-53, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 80937. Or use the donation link on our website, livinggodministries.net that is livinggodministries.net Thank you,